Rise and Shine, bitches. Welcome back to another episode of Just a Quick Pinch. I'm your host, Connie Wang. You know, a part of me is kind of like, I really want to change that intro, especially now that I know that my boss could potentially listen to this at any point. But you know what? We're just going to keep it for now. It just, it adds a little bit of flavor. It's just who we are. I've gone this far and I haven't changed it yet. But um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about right now. Anyways, I am excited for you guys to hear from today's guest because I simply just cannot gatekeep him any longer. So today I have on our financial advisor, Alan, who we've been working with for like almost a year now. And it has just been so game changing the world of financial planning and wealth management that he has opened up to us. And I just think this information is so important for every young woman out there in healthcare. And so this is basically going to be a series because I went into this thinking like, okay, Alan, let's record an episode together. And as we were recording, we were just like, okay, there's no possible way to fit in all the information that I want us to learn. And I want him to share with us into one. So this will actually be a series for today. I hope you guys enjoy part one of my conversation with Alan. Um, Let me know any questions you have for him in the future as well. And without further ado, let's get into it. Well, Alan, I'm so excited to have you on. First of all, because when I posted that I had a financial advisor on my story, everyone was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, it it honestly is something that like they don't really tell us about at all in school. And when I think about like what finances mean to me when I was in school, I'm going to be honest. Maybe you knew when you first met me. I kind of thought finances were like boring. I I don't know. Do you hear that a lot? Like numbers are boring? (laughs) Of course. So what I wanted to give my audience today is a little bit of that Alan magic that just makes finances fun. I was like, these people got to. Oh, my God. Wait, also, I forgot to tell you this, Alan. You're my first, besides Jimmy, you're my first male guest on this show. So everyone, welcome our first male Ah. guest. (laughs) Honored. So how can finances be fun? Tell us about like how finances are actually like a human experience. Yes. Yeah. Well, hey, let me go ahead. Just something that you said, our number one clientele right now are young, empowered women who are lighting the world on fire. (laughs) Um, You know, kind of the old adage, like, you know, just women in general are more open to advice and, you know, kind of that old joke, like men don't stop and ask for directions. Well, it, (laughs) it applies with financial planning, too. So um, I think we've known for a long time now that, you know, women are the uh, decision makers in a household. And so a lot of the financial planning we do is um, is with just strong women who care about their finances, care about their future. So um, just want to let you know that I'm coming into this podcast with so much respect and just honor that I'm, you know, featured. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. (laughs) But how do we make finances fun, right? So I think when we think of finances, we're thinking of dollars and cents. And unfortunately, we're thinking about budgeting. And budgeting, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't think of something more boring and, you know, laborious than writing down where you're spending your money. But budgeting is such a small part of a financial plan. It's an important part, don't get me wrong. But where financial planning gets fun is when we look at cash flow management and we stop thinking about cutting expenses and we start thinking about making more money, right? Because we've got two ways that we can do this. Number one is you can work really hard to watch all of your expenses. You can go out to dinner and not get wine, but get water instead. And of course, you probably wouldn't have many friends either because who the heck wants to be <laughs> somebody's drinking water, right? So yep. that's one way you can go. Or you can look at everything you've got and say, hey, how do we increase revenue? 
right? Maybe it's um, maybe it's more education that we can take. Maybe it's a leadership role at work. Um, obviously, one thing I'm not mentioning is like driving Uber, right? I don't I don't like those side hustles, so to speak. I like things that are already in line with your career aspirations. Um, mm-hmm. But when we're working with financial planning and with clients, we are constantly looking at question of how can we increase revenue because that's where life happens that's where we're going to be able to live more so that's what financial planning is about is increasing resources so that we can live more right we're not here to make money just to make money we're here to make money and build wealth so that we can give more so that we can be more so we could do more so we can have more and there's nothing shallow about that. There's nothing, uh, you know, materialistic about that. For us to be able to live our fullest lives, we have to be able to have the resources to do that. My first thought when before we were going to, uh, before Jimmy and I were meeting with you on our first video call, I was like, oh man, here we go. We're going to talk about like the numbers and I'm going to get all anxious. And then so we were making small talk in the beginning of our call. We were talking about, you know, the wedding I'm going to plan, the kids I want to have someday, the house we want to buy. And I, at first I was kind of like, okay, when is the small talk going to stop? And then I realized, I'm like, oh, this is like... Alan's job is to know like my life and what I want. And all of a sudden, like all the doors open. I was like, this is so fun because I'm like, Alan's here to plan my life with me. I, I love that, right? I, and thanks so much for reminding me that. Um, I think a lot of financial advisors, this is not a misperception. I think a lot of financial advisors try to have people plan their lives around the financial plan and saying, oh, well, you can't do that because it's not in the financial plan, right? We take the opposite approach. We want to know what the life plan is, and then we want to design the financial plan to help you get that. So let's just take a wedding, for example, right? We've got a wedding coming up, right? Well, we're not going to sit down there and tell you it's not in the budget. Come on, what are we doing here? We're going to find a way to make this work. And not only are we going to make this wedding work, but we're going to show you how to pay with it. Maybe it's via certain credit cards so that we can get these rewards points built up. So when you go on your honeymoon, we're going on our honeymoon paid for mostly by credit card rewards points because we use those to help plan the wedding. Or maybe it's a balance transfer credit card where we put things on a credit card that has a 0% interest rate that we get to pay off over the next two years that maybe allows you to go from having a beer and wine bar to an open bar or from a DJ to a live band, whatever it allows you to do, right? So when we're looking at somebody's finances, we're not there to tell people what they can, what they can't do. That's their job to tell us that our, our job is to find a way to make it happen. And do you find at all clients that, For example, I feel like part of my hesitation for approaching money and being interested in being like financially literate at first is because not only was money kind of boring to me, it was also kind of scary to me because I felt like it was something where on one spectrum, I just have this like fear in me that like, if I don't make money, I'll be poor, then I'm gonna die. Like, like, so there's something about money that is so innately like scary to me as a human, it feels like, like, like dangerous in a way. Do you deal with people that have that attitude also? Of course, right? A lot of what we're doing, I'm actually taking a behavioral finance course right now. Really? To get a little bit more, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it, get a little bit more um, uh, well-versed with the behavior and the psychology behind money. But when we meet somebody new, they're all coming from a different background um, and both educationally, but also, you know, what they experienced growing up. 
And one of the challenges we have is if somebody somebody's family was living paycheck to paycheck, meal to meal. You think about that. All of humanity lived meal to meal for the majority of our existence, right? And if you look at just life expectancy, for instance, we are trying to plan for retirement between ages 60 and 90. That is so far-fetched from somebody who just lived 100 years ago, right? Mm. With, with a life expectancy, probably wasn't even age 60 yet, right? And so we are trying to take this genetical hardwiring to not save anything. Why mm. would we save a meal? We don't know when the next meal is going to be. If we save that deer carcass, it might rot. Another animal might get it, right? We are here to consume, consume, consume. And we are trying to work against thousands of years of hardwiring there to get people to save money for 30 to 60 years in the future. There's no, of course that's daunting, right? Uh, of course that can be scary. It's not in our human nature to do that. So a lot of financial planning is setting up some of these systems and processes so that we can uh, override that human nature hardwiring in there and then we can just uh, it, you know automatically make progress towards that goal. But to get back to your point, why is it scary? I think that the unknown is scary. Listen, you're a doctor. You're smart as a whip, right? You know a lot about a lot, right? And you may not give yourself credit for that, but you do. And you're a lot of times, you know, you're going to be one of the smartest people in the room for the majority of your life. So when we start talking about something that you weren't brought up to know, that wasn't taught to you in high school and college and graduate school, that can just be overwhelming. Wow. When you put it that way, I, I never thought about it that way. But when you put it that way, I'm like, you're right. Like this is, it's no wonder I'm afraid of it because it, it is the unknown. But it's just like any other class I took in school. Like once I equip myself with like the right tools, I understand the vernacular and all that. Then like the whole game changes. All of a sudden it's like reading a book in, in a language that I understand rather than like something I don't understand. That's um, funny. I mean, listen, covalent bonds are very intimidating <laughs> to a lot of people, right? You know, anatomy and all that stuff, right? So, you, you know, our when we are working with people, we believe that education leads to empowerment. And we also believe that particularly our generation grew up in an information age mm. where they could go Google something and make an educated decision rather quickly, right? The problem with the information age, particularly when it comes to finances, is that it's, it, it quickly became the over-information age, sometimes even the misinformation age there, right? But mm. our generation in particular are used to making educated decisions. So what we do when we're working with clients, we take that extra time up front and we are going to send them a you know, good amount of material there to get them to where they feel comfortable with the decision they're making on the edu educational part. And what we find is that spending more time up front on the education side empowers them to make quicker, more decisive decisions mm. that they're like, that they're going to stick to for the long run there. So I think a lot of the fear is just the fact that most people's parents did not talk to them about this stuff at the dinner table. There was not a high school class on this. There's nothing in college. Right. Then you go on Amazon and there's a million books written about this. You go on YouTube and you don't know where to start, right? And so it's just overwhelming where it's at. And that's, you know, that's where having a good partner can really come in handy because we can, you know, siphon all of the noise down to two or three bits 
that you need to be comfortable in, in, in making that decision. Now, I am curious. Uh, I totally agree. It's the, it's the same with what we're seeing in like the healthcare field. There's so much misinformation now out there because of how accessible and easy it is for anyone to post anything and call it a fact. Off the top of your head, are there any common things you see on the internet now that are like common misinformation things that you would like to tell my audience about? Let's say you're scrolling on TikTok, someone's making a, a video about this. What is something you've seen where you're like, that is not correct? <laughs> yes. All right. So I'll go on the record and say, I actually love the fintech the TikTok. I mm -hmm. love those things because they, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they get the conversation started. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not like anybody's reaching out to that person to be their financial advisor, but my clients will come back to me and say, hey, I saw this. I'm like, I've told you that three times, right? It, you know, been sitting TikTok and you remember it, right? Yeah. Um, Jimmy says the same thing, by the way. Jimmy's always yeah. like, why do you listen to TikTok but not me when I tell you something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Something about it, right? Yeah. The second thing I would say is that a lot of the things I see on TikTok are from unregistered, rep, unregistered advisors, meaning they don't have uh, the red tape that I do. If I, I could not go post a video on TikTok, let alone oh. say what they are saying, right? So got we've it. got a compliance department because I'm fully licensed here. There's things I can and can't say. So I would just keep that in mind when you're seeing stuff on TikTok. A lot of the times what they're saying can be rooted in truth. But I would tell you when something is made up, particularly a, a product or an idea, when somebody comes at me and says, this is the best idea ever, or this solves all issues, immediately red, red flags, right? It's not saying it's not good. Mm -hmm. But what you tend to find on TikTok is somebody who really likes one product, one idea, and you need to definitely do this. Well, you might need to do it, and it might be a good idea for you. But just keep in mind, a lot of these times, these are unregistered um, folks, or at least their compliance department did not have to look at that prior. Um, and you, you, sometimes they get a little product heavy where they're trying to sell one product. And that's mm -hmm. when I would just say, hey, take it, absorb it, learn from it. But then maybe talk to somebody who's going to take a little bit more holistic, you know, vantage point of your situation. You know what I'm realizing as we're talking is actually it's it's very similar to how like medicine and dentistry is practiced in that like we learn information about all the possible treatments. But then when it comes to the person in front of me, I have to really take a holistic look at them and say like, what is best for them? It might not what's best for them in their situation. Same person could have the exact same thing, but it might not be the right treatment for them. And I feel like with finances, you're kind of like that. You're like the practitioner that's like helping me with choosing my path. In a sense. That's right. And that's how we like to, you know. Uh, when I was when I was starting out, they, they really did want us to be somewhat like a doctor and then say, hey, why don't we diagnose a problem and then prescribe a solution? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, in as much sense as that makes, you went to undergrad where you studied real hard and then you went to med school and then you went to residency, right? I had two weeks of training. I was 22 years old and they wanted me to pretend like a financial doctor, right? <laughs> so whereas I would pretty much go with whatever you tell me, to do because I, I you know I know that you've been through leaps and bounds of education and training right not all financial advisors have done that right mm. you know there is no uh, there is a school for financial education it's 
you know, you go get your certified financial professional designation. So there are certain designations you need to look for when you're talking to a financial advisor. But the majority of people do not have that. They have a couple weeks of training and then really are getting filtered down whatever their company's kind of telling them. Right. But I do. Yes, I do my best to try to be a holistic uh, financial advisor um, in the way that you would go in and look at a patient. Now, I want to get to know Alan a little bit, too. So tell me a little bit about what drew you to financial management. Did you were you like born, like came out of the womb and you're like, this is what I want to do. And I also want to hear, too, about what it's been like starting your own firm, which is the Mill Financial Partners. I think it's really cool what you've been doing. And you're an entrepreneur with all your books and everything. But yeah, tell me a bit about how you got here. Sure, sure. So I had uh, the privilege of watching my parents move up in class. And that is very rare. I had the privilege of watching my dad, whose dad worked at a gas station, right, go from middle class to upper class. And I got to see the work ethic that it took to do that, the money moves that it took to do that. And so um, all the time my dad was reading me these things like, uh, you know, like these self-help books on how to get better and how to improve. And some of those were um, a guy named Robert Kiyosaki who wrote a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh, yes. I've been meaning to read that. <laughs> yes, yes. And and, and the, the general theme of that, uh, and there was a great board game called Cash Flow. I, I highly write it's like Monopoly to an nth degree, uh, particularly in personal finances. But the, the end goal there is to get your passive cash flow basically from rent, rental homes is the main way to be bigger than your monthly expenses. And when you did that, when you got your passive income bigger than your monthly expenses, you got out of the rat race. The rat race is what we're all in, right? We're all nine five grind, all that stuff. And when you got out of the rat race, there was an outside track called the fast track. And this is where you could make big deals that don't get 7% rate of return like the markets do. They get 20, 30, 40% rates of returns there. So I grew up with the fortune of being able to watch somebody who is self-taught, who knew nothing about money, and moved his family up to where we'll have generational wealth now. And that's such a privilege, and I do not take that for granted any day, right? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pass that along to other people, right, so that we can, in one generation, move up in class and create multi-generational wealth now. So, I grew up with that, and then I went to school and I studied economics in school, um, which doesn't have much to do with personal finances, but it's it, it is helpful when I'm looking at what's going on in the world right now, so you kind of understand why the federal why the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, even though it hurts, why they're having to do that. So it's able to communicate. It's easier to convey that to clients having more of a macroeconomic. Got view. it. But I'll be honest with you. I got into financial planning because I absolutely had to. I had no other choice. I graduated in 2010. It was about a year and a half into the Great Recession. The job economy was the worst that it had ever been since the Great Recession, right? So I had two options. I could go, I say three. I could go teach elementary school in the Mississippi Delta with Teach for America, which at that time, surprisingly, was harder to get than getting into Harvard, 
was. Oh it my was, god! It, it, oh yeah, Teach for America blew up there during the during the Great Recession. So, um, but I had a lot of friends that do that, and uh, they just said, "Alan, this is so hard." Uh, so you know, you know, props to all the teachers, particularly those in inner city schools and everything out there. It was a huge challenge for them. So the other option I had was law school. And I thought about that a lot. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, that's one of my strengths is reading and reading comprehension, things of that nature. Um, so I thought about that a lot, but I figured at that time, everybody was going to law school and I kind of figured, hey, if if this doesn't work and I, I can always go back, right? Mm. And then the third thing was taking a commission only sales job at a financial institution, right? And so, um, that's what I did. And there was no salary. I was 22 years old. I had no clue what I was doing. As mentioned, I had two weeks of training. Uh, and I graduated on a Saturday at 10 o'clock. And I was in the office at 12 o'clock that Saturday getting ready for work on Monday. Oh, my um, gosh. And so I got into financial planning because I had to. However, I, I, I'm leaving some details out, and the detail is is that this profession is just perfectly suited for, for who I am, right? I, I wanted to help people. Um, that was my main thing. Whatever I did, I wanted to be able to make an impact on other people. And this profession, uh, more than most, probably not the most out of all, I would say a doctor is you know definitely making a bigger impact than I am, but this profession gives me that ability every single day to go in and, and help people live their fullest lives through financial planning. Flash, uh, you know, fast forward here. I was with that first company. I was with Northwestern Mutual for five years. Um, I learned a lot there. I will say what I learned more than anything, though, is that a lot of people in our industry will masquerade as financial advisors or financial planners. And realistically, they're financial sales reps for a company. Mm. And that's one of the things that you kind of need to be aware of. Because, you know, typically starting out, you don't have a million dollars yet, right? So the top advisors are not, they don't they don't even want to take time unless you got a million bucks yet, right? So what, you know, what you're going to find is a lot of people selling product. Maybe it's a mutual fund. Maybe it's an ETF. Maybe it's an insurance policy, right? Um, and that's fine. Those are all great products. We need those products. But typically people are looking more for a financial partner to help them with a lot of the life decisions not a financial salesperson. So seeing that, I moved away and um, I got married to my wife, Allison. We took our Jack Russell bow. We moved up to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And we, um, at that point in time, I figured this would be a good time to start at a new firm. So Switch Firms has started doing what we call fee-based financial planning. And the idea there is, okay, yes, if people need insurance, we're going to help them out with insurance. If people need investments, we'll help them out with investments. However, there is so much more to financial planning than insurance and investments. There's budgeting. There's goal setting. There's choosing employee benefits. How stressful it is to choose your employee benefits. Well, we sit down with people, and within 10 minutes, they share their screen, and they're done. And they know that they've done it right. right? Mm-hmm. Pricing out their car and their home insurance. How many people just go with the State Farm or the Allstate, right? We're going to price it out to 10 different companies here. Um, helping people understand debt and leverage and how to get into that first 
that primary home, maybe how to build a rental income empire, get that mountain house that they always wanted, but maybe get it at age 30 rather than age 60 kind of deal, right? So there's all this stuff that's not insurance or investment related that really makes life tick. And that's what I saw. The challenge that I saw, though, is that a lot of that planning is geared towards the baby boomer generation because that's where the money's at, right? And I saw an opportunity to bring that kind of white glove concierge approach, bringing it down to the millennial generation or to the younger generation. So about four years ago, we started, we, we, we piloted a program where we were going to approach financial planning not in a salesy way, but more in that educational empowerment approach to it, geared geared towards younger people and how they like to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And we did that about four years ago, and it it just took off. And so we were able to uh, branch out, form our own company, the Mill Financial Partners. Mill is short for millennial. So oh, got yes, it. yes, I know that's a dirty word, but <laughs> I'm very proud of our generation. I think our Me generation too. is going to solve a lot of issues. I think we're going to be the glue that keeps this thing together as it seemingly is falling apart here. Um, <laughs> I hope so, so. And if not, then maybe I'll be gone by then. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. Listen, we'll do our best, right? Yeah. We'll do our best. But, um, you know, what I found, the reason we started this company, once again, it was a calling and it very few financial advisors are doing this, but we were working with baby boomers like most people and people our age were coming to us with very unique challenges Mm. that had never been faced before in human history. Okay. People were coming to us with a quarter million dollars of student debt. People were coming to us asking how in the heck do we buy a home in this environment? Right. People were coming to us and saying, how do we financially plan when we cannot rely on Social Security being there, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things is, you know, how are you going to solve today's new challenges, unforeseen challenges with yesterday's tricks, right? And so why are we going to rely on our parents' financial advisors or just our parents in general to help us solve problems? That, that they never had. Of course she paid for college by working at a bar. College was $250 a quarter back then, right? You're still right. in the quarter system, right? <laughs> now we're looking at 25 grand a year, right? Not $2,500. And so, um, y- you know, using our parents or our parents' financial advisor, y- you know, let's just say what got us here won't get us there sometimes, right? And so we saw this huge opportunity to help a generation that frankly has been overlooked, that's been stepped on, that's got a lot of challenges, but more importantly, it's up to the challenge. And we found um, just, you know, people who are fired up to, to take control of their finances. And I tell you what, one of the biggest reasons that we are able to do that, and particularly when we work with you know, husband, wives here, the wives are crushing it. All right. <laughs> they are crushing it. You look at the, my generation, um, and, or sorry, my, look at our parents and, and, you know, I'll speak about my mother. She was awesome. She's great. I love her so much. She stayed at home and racist, right? And that was more the norm back then. 
right? And you look at it now, and I know we've got a long way to go, but I feel like in our generation, at least within my clientele, oftentimes the women are making more income than the men. <laughs> uh, and you're finding that to be more and more often there. So I would not be able to do what I'm doing with the younger generation if it wasn't for that opportunity. That's so interesting to have that insight on like how things have changed since our parents era. Also, I love it for all the women out there crushing it. Um, and I, I think it was really, really smart of you to get into the psyche of <clears throat> of your clientele because you're right. Like young professionals, we're the ones that want this information. We want to read your book. We want to listen to the podcast. We want to work with a financial advisor so that we can make the right decisions. Like we're really uh, curious learners and independent in that sense. Speaking too of like, you know, our generation and people in my position. So let's say, so I just graduated. I feel very poor right now. I haven't started working, Alan. I'm like, I don't have finances to manage yet, Alan. What, what are you really doing here? But I know I'm about to, you know, my net worth is about to change and I yep. need to start acting a certain way. So what are some smart moves for someone in my position right now that just graduated, don't have a ton of finances yet so far, but what are some good money moves to start making day one? You know, I'm about to start working literally next week. What's a good move for yep. us to make? Yeah. All right. So let me give you permission. You have delayed gratification for a long time. All right. <laughs> you deserve to have some fun with those first couple of paychecks. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, right. You, you deserve like reward yourself. You deserve to have some fun. All right. Well, I that, need now you to tell Jimmy that. So. <laughs> all right. Deal. 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 Um, but once the dust settles, once you've caught up and you've got, it, it, this always happens when people have a huge income jump, there's some things that they've been meaning to do, maybe meaning to buy, pay off, you, you know, where, all right, we're making a lot more money, but we may not feel rich here for a little while because there's some things we got to catch up on. But once that dust settles here, the biggest thing that we want to try to do with our clients is we don't want there to be a huge lifestyle creep. Okay. Got it. Meaning, all right, we are used to living off of four grand a month. There's no reason that that should change that drastically overnight. Okay. Maybe it's switching an apartment, you know, where all of a sudden we need six grand a month. Not a huge deal right there. Maybe it is going and buying a house or something, right? But what we want to try to avoid are some of the, you know, some of the stereotypical stuff like, all right, let's go get a new BMW or something. Okay. Yeah, that $800 a month payment is going to hit on the first of every month for the next six years, okay? So what we're trying to do as financial advisors is we're trying to automatically set up systems and processes so we get that money out of your checking account, right? Having a lot of money in your checking account is like having a really comfortable bed. It's hard to get out of and we just get comfortable, right? Yep. So it doesn't keep us motivated. We actually want to put artificial pressure, internal pressure on ourselves so that there's never external pressure or real pressure, right? So what we're going to do is we want to automatically get money at the money comes into your checking account. Let's say, let's say for easy math, we're going to make 10K after taxes a month. So we're going to have two paychecks of 5K, 5K each. 5K comes in at the beginning of the month, rent, car payment, utilities, all that stuff. Okay. All right. So we go from you know, 5K down to 2K, and then we get another 5K at, on the 15th of the month. So now we're up to 7K, but now credit card comes out, all right, um, which is 3K or whatever. So we should have roughly $4,000 left over to be able to save. Now, of course, we're not going to take all 4,000 of that, but what if we were to put 
$1,000 into an emergency fund each month, $1,000 okay. into an investment fund each month, right? Um, you know, $1,000 into something, you know, that's making us money. Just getting it out of there so that we don't feel comfortable is one of the things that I would recommend people set up sooner rather than later. And what would be an example of that thing that would make you money? Yeah, great question. All right. So first of all, you don't even need to do, you don't even need to send money there. Let's say you're starting out and you've got a 403B or a 401K. Same exact thing, 403Bs for charities okay. and hospitals, 401Ks for profits, right? Um, that money doesn't even get to you, right? And so the first thing we're going to want to do is make certain that you're taking care of the match, that you're at least putting up to the match. Most Can you explain what will... the match is also for yes, everyone? Yes, yes. All right, so most companies will match a percentage of what you put into a 401K, all right? Most commonly, we'll see a 50% match up to 6%, meaning you put 6% of your paycheck in there, they're going to match 3%. Every now and then, you'll see a hospital does a really good job of matching 5%, right? So the first thing I would recommend anybody do as long as they can, make certain that you're putting the match on your 401k, right? After that, we do need to start building up an emergency fund. So we need to have three to six months of expenses in cash so that when that laundry machine breaks or we have that trip that we have to take, when we, we have to have that emergency fund there, okay? Once we have that there, then we want to start contributing money maybe to a Roth IRA. So a Roth IRA is basically a tax advantage investment account. When you put money into a Roth, it's going to grow tax deferred and you're going to be able to take it out tax free in retirement, which is defined as age 59 and a half. So it's basically saying, hey, we pay taxes on the income, but we're going to put it in this vehicle and it'll never pay taxes again on this. Right. The problem with a Roth IRA is that there's a limit right now at 6,500 per year, but also there's an income limit. And a lot of doctors are going to be making too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA. That's why that 401k is so important. And so kind of, you know, you know, the order here, go ahead and do the match on the 401k, build up that three to six months of savings in an emergency fund. If you're under, I forget the income limits, Google the income limits, because it, it, it's, if you're married, it's here, if it's single, okay. it's a one, right? But if you're underneath that income limit, go ahead and put in that 6,500 to a Roth. Then after all that, start to increase that 401k until we're maxing uh, maxing it out, which right now is 22500 a year for people under age 55. Another question. A lot of my audience actually are young professionals still in school, grad school, medical school, dental school, pharmacy school. Is there anything that these students, you know, being a student is really, really tough because we're really making negative money there. What things can students be doing to really set themselves up for success? You know, I think for students, I, I, I think rather than getting ahead, it's more of a question of how can we not dig a hole that we're going to regret later on, right? So, I mean, here's the deal. It's it's hard not to take out student loans in today's environment, right? It's We kind of have to. <laughs> we kind of have to, right? And I'd rather you take out student loans than take out credit card debt, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think, you know, the biggest things that I would encourage people to do, this would be across the board, you, you know, is keep in mind your credit. 
Keep in mind your credit score. We do want to have a good credit coming out. And then the one thing I would see, I would challenge everybody, student, you know, young doctor, depending on where you live in the environment, it would be really nice to try to purchase real estate as early as you can. Real estate tends to go up in value. Therefore, that tends to go up in cost. Right now, as we're feeling this, a little bit weird environment. Home prices are way up. Interest rates are way up. This is this is abnormal here. So, you know, assuming that, you know, we're not in this time period or that interest rates go down, um, if there's a way that we can find a way to purchase a home, whether it's going in with a friend, a parent, a family member, that way, you know, you could start to build some real estate residuals and then you can rent that place out to future students along the way. Mm -hmm. That is one way if you have the ability to start building that financial portfolio up. Other than, that, other than that, though, I would say this. You are going to be a doctor one day. I, as a financial advisor, have no doubt that you will make enough money to make up for the years that you spent in school and residency. No doubt in my mind. I've done a lot. I've done thousands of financial plans. We're going to make up for it. So I would say one other tip. Don't stress about this, right? Okay. You will be able to catch up. This is not the time to worry about getting financially ahead. It's more about, hey, how do we not fall too far behind? Totally. That makes sense. In your book, actually, there's a section all about ways to like increase cash flow and decrease expenditures. We were kind of touching upon that. Um, could you give everyone like a little tangible tool that they can use today? Sure. So let's talk about expenses first. Um, there's good technology out there today that will track all of your expenses for you, right? So when we when we bring on a client, we give them their own per, uh, personal financial website. We ask them to link all their credit cards and all their bank accounts. Whenever they go over budget, they get an alert. They mm. can go in at any point in time and see every transaction that they've made. And what that does is that that brings awareness to where their money is going. Budgeting is an exercise in values. We want to make certain that your money is following your values. Meaning, if you are a Barbie fanatic, and Barbie the movie's coming out Thursday, <laughs> right? And you want to go to the movies and get the popcorn and everything. It's going to cost $50 and you want to go get a costume that costs 20 or whatever, right? You should be able to do that. That expense of 70 bucks is in line with your values. That being said, my wife and I went to the movies the other night and the movie ticket was 30 freaking dollars, okay? Oh my gosh. And we went to go see, I forget the name of the movie, but we went to go see a movie that was good, not great. Oh. I could have easily waited a month for that to come out, right? I could have waited six months for that to come out. So when I look back at that expense, that expense doesn't really align with my values. It was, hey, I'm bored. What are we gonna do Friday night? Okay, let's go do a movie in a day night, right? Well, we could have we could have done that a little bit differently, right? So when we're looking at our expenditures, I want to make certain that our money is aligning with our values. And ninety percent of the time it will, but roughly ten percent of the time, or you make up the number, a small amount of percent of the time, it won't. And we want to make certain we cut those. So it sounds like from what you're saying that like the biggest thing anyone can do doesn't matter what money you're making yet if you're still a student making negative money the most important thing you should do is just get clear on what your values are because then you won't be spending like kind of mindlessly and like realizing it doesn't align after a hundred percent so when we run into people who have spending issues 
it is a deeper issue. There is something going on psychologically or emotionally where they're having to cover up and, and constantly stay busy by doing things or retail therapy by buying things. Well, and, and who knows, every single person that, that comes to see us, we're meeting them at a different spot, their spot, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the keys, I would say, of building wealth long term is being able to find joy in the simple things in life and having an activity being walking around a park one day. That's why our generation loves loves to go hiking, right? It's free. Now, our generation also likes to take Instagram posts in far off lands and, you know, <laughs> you know they're yeah. like, hey, we're not we're not keeping up with the Joneses on who has the nicest washing machine, but we sure as heck are and who went to, you know. Who went to Europe? Europe. Yeah. Europe, right? So um, anyways, but I would say just keep in mind with those budgeting expenses is that, you, you know, if we're. If we're having an expense issue, there's a deeper reason that we probably need to evaluate why. And that doesn't mean it's going to be harder to fix, you know, but got it. it's part of a journey. We all are on our own journey. Last question before I let you go. We somehow have run out of time so quick, which is insane. I will be having Alan back for a part two to discuss generational wealth. So don't you guys worry. Um, but the last question, I just want to know, you know, what are some of the mistakes that you see people tend to make? Maybe like you're you're meeting someone and they've made a mistake. What are some of the most common mistakes that you want people to avoid? Great question. And um, obviously, there's a ton of mistakes out there. Else, I wouldn't have a job, right? <laughs> um, I would say a, a couple things. Number one, I want to be general, and then let's get really into the weeds here. Number sure. one is that people don't ask for help, right? And, and there's so many good professionals out there that are willing to help. Another thing is this: typically, when we find somebody who is what they think good at handling money. They tend to be highly focused in on one area, maybe pay a little bit of attention to another area. What is an example of like an area? Yes. All right. So let's say that somebody really likes the stock market and they are really doing well in their 401k. All right. And then they put a lot of money into a stock market and they're picking their own stocks and everything. And they think that they're financially savvy because they really know the stock market. All right. Well, that's great. But you may have not even known that a certain insurance over here exists that you need to go ahead and get and lock in at a certain age to help you save you tens of thousands of dollars by getting it now rather than in the future. Or you may be really great at this, but you're paying five grand a month for rent in an apartment or something when you should be buying a house and then turning that house into a rental home and buying another home, right? Um, or you may be really good at the stock picking, but you didn't realize that your employee benefits offers you a health savings account, which is the most tax advantaged account in the entire IRS tax code, and that we need to be maxing that out and investing those dollars, right? So what I find is when people are trying to manage their own money, they tend to gravitate to what interests them the most or what they're best at. And so what they tend to do is they tend to look at their money as solo acts, okay, like a guitar solo, piano solo, uh, a voice solo, and the 401k is over here doing its thing, and then their emergency funds over here doing this thing, and then their entrance is over here doing that thing, and none of them are talking to each other, none of them are communicating, 
none of them are building and finding synergy with each other. So what a good financial advisor is going to do is they're going to take all of these moving parts that were previously solo acts, and we're going to put it together and make it an orchestra, right? We're going to have a symphony here. And the idea is that the, um, you know, that the sum is actually bigger than the parts here, that they are complementing each other, communicating with each other. Uh, and that's, to me, what a beautiful financial plan does is it creates magic by, uh, by synchronizing all of these moving parts. Wow, that's so awesome. That's honestly something that like I never even thought about. Like these parts, like in my head, it's just like your money's your money. And then, you know, you do something with it and it either grows or it goes down. But like from what you're saying, I understand now, like there's, there's so many moving parts to it. And the hope is that they can move together and work together rather than anything taking away from something else. Or like even just not having a firm grasp on one thing and then dropping the ball on one side and then dropping the next ball, you know. That's right. And there's a lot of moving parts, right? So have grace on yourself. Like it's hard to keep all that stuff straight. And that's why finding the right financial partner is is, is really integral to long-term success on this. Yeah. Now, before we take off, tell everyone about your new book. I checked it out on Amazon and Kindle. It is so legit, but we will be having you back for a part two very shortly. But tell everyone all about your book first. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I, I tell you what, I am very happy with the way it turned out. Um, I had been writing this thing for three years for the sole three reason years. Oh my God. I, I felt an obligation to get this information out to more people. Right. I felt like I had to write. This is not a luxury. It's not something I wanted to feel like I had to do it. And after two years, I had made like minimal progress. And then I ended up hiring um, the self-publishing institute to help me get this thing over the uh, the finish line. So we Good. Made last year, this book is catered to your audience. This book is catered to people that are starting to make money and starting to wonder, what do I do with that money? Right. And so um, that's kind of the audience. That's who I have in mind when I'm writing this book. And so uh, it's called Empowered Money. You can go to empowered-money.com to see that. Um, and, I, you know, I'd love if y'all would help me build it up in the algorithms by buying it and giving it a review. And I, I'm really happy with the way it came out. And so uh, I would also say a third thing, too, is you know, these books are rather easy to edit. So if there's any way that I can get make it better, please let me know. Uh, you know, we're trying, just trying to add as much value as we can here. Well, thank you so much for everything, Alan, today. I, I know you have a meeting, so I don't want to keep you long. But um, if you could just leave everyone your contact info so that they can reach out to you if they have any questions, and he'll be back for part two. Absolutely. So our website is themillfp.com. FP stands for financial planners, right? So themillfp.com on there. We've got podcasts you can listen to. We've got blogs that we've written. And you can also schedule a meeting right there. You can also just email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at themillfp.com. That's A-L-A-N at themillfp.com. Would love to, hey, I'd love to chat with anybody here. We've got multiple financial advisors on our team. So if you feel like you don't have enough money yet for a financial advisor, please still reach out. I've got a junior advisor and he needs he needs more clients, right? So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll figure something out here um, and get you, get you going on the right track. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan. Hey, thanks, Connie. Have a great day. Also, thanks so much for everyone for listening and I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Yeah.